Hello there. My name is Stefan Frost, the host of Game Devastation, the podcast you are listening to right now. Just as a heads up, sometimes there are opinions on this show. Sometimes there are curse words on this show. Sometimes I just sob for about 20 minutes. I don't know why people keep listening to it. Anyway, all these things are from me. They're not really representative of the company I work for or previous companies that I've worked for. So just a heads up, then that's about it. Okay, legal disclaimer now over. This episode of Game Devastation is brought to you by Pixel Dynamo. You can find the latest news, reviews, and updates to all the games that you care about. Check out PixelDynamo.com or follow them on Twitter at PixelDynamo for your up-to-the-second news on the games you care about. Also, in a less commercial way, this is a pretty sweet site. So if you haven't checked it out, PixelDynamo.com, go read it. I think I said PixelDynamo.com enough. PixelDynamo.com. Okay, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to Game Devastation. My name is Stefan Frost. Today I am joined by Forrest Dowling, and we're going to talk about the flame and the flood. Uh, Forrest, thank you for coming on the show, first of all. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about your game. It is a um, survival game. It has a very stylized kind of look. Can you tell everybody basically what is the point of the game and uh, what do you do as the protagonist in the game? Um, yeah, so the I guess the point of the game is you're just trying to get down river and there's some hints right at the beginning that sort of tell you, you know, what you might be looking for, but that's sort of something that you uncover uh, over the course of, of play. Um, as far as like what you're actually doing, um, a lot of the moment-to-moment gameplay, uh, it kind of alternates between two experiences. Uh, one is in the, the rafting experience where you're basically going down the river and it's almost kind of arcadey where you're, you know, um, avoiding obstacles and trying to navigate uh, rapids and that sort of thing. And then the other is when you're exploring and at that point you're doing more like kind of what you think of as survival game type stuff, like uh, gathering supplies and crafting materials and making fires and finding shelter and uh, trapping animals and avoiding predators and uh, all that kind of stuff. So where did the idea for this game come from? Um, I think it came from two specific places. Like one was um, my own interest as a designer in wanting to like kind of make a game that was based on sort of pared down survival that was you know less about uh, combat and that sort of stuff that you see in a lot of survival games and more just about the actual act of you know foraging and and um, like actual wilderness survival uh, and then that initially kind of paired with an idea that the um, artist that I'm working with uh, wanted to explore, which was the idea of tiny worlds, as he put it initially, which is the idea of just sort of creating these little spaces that you're a little character within and can run around and explore. And we kind of mushed those two ideas together. And that, I guess that became the starting point for the game. And then, you know, a lot of the other stuff that you see currently with it is uh, like an outgrowth of those two specific ideas. Now, how many people are on the project currently? Uh, Six of us all together. Well, there's six core team. We have one audio guy uh, who's helping out. So he would be a seventh, although he's not full time. Okay, uh, and, and a musician as well, but he's he recorded an album and now he's raising a baby and touring Europe. So that's Chuck Reagan, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So first of all, uh, I found out about your game because I'm a Chuck Reagan fan, and somebody had said, "Oh, I guess Chuck Reagan's like the soundtrack for this survival yeah. game." I was like, "What?" <laughs> so um, 
Yeah, yeah. I checked it out through that. Uh, now, how did you come to know Chuck Reagan? Just because this is my own personal interest, and this has nothing to do with game dev, so uh, forgive me, everybody here. But uh, how did how did this come about? Well, so um, the co-founder of, of this uh, studio is this guy, Scott Sinclair, um, who is the uh, art director at Irrational Games before um, it downsized. And um, he and Chuck go way back. Like, they were buddies back when, you know, Sync was in college in Florida 20-odd years ago. And um, he, uh, Sync is, um, in addition to, you know, being an art director uh, in the world of games, before that he did a lot of editorial work, including a lot of, like, album covers and whatnot. And uh, he had done all the Hot Water Music album covers, which was Chuck's, you know, prior band before doing this sort of solo all-country thing. Um, so they've, you know, known each other for many, many, many years. Um, you know, Sync has done all the album covers and a lot of t-shirts and posters and that sort of stuff for Chuck over the years. Um, so when we started working on the game and got to the point where he started thinking like, oh, you know, all right, survival, American South, you know, traveling through backwaters, that kind of thing. Um, it became a natural fit. Like I was initially looking at some other musicians that were in the realm of alt country or Americana. And Sync was just like, you know, I know a guy who's actually like pretty well known and <laughs> really accomplished <laughs> musician. Uh, so we reached out to Chuck and described what we wanted to do, like just some of the basic ideas about, you know, you know, this girl with her dog on the river and you're rafting and you're trying to survive in the wilderness. And he was immediately like all about that stuff like that. He's a pretty big outdoorsman himself. So it was a pretty easy sell to just say like, you know, it's a game about that. <laughs> My wife and I have this, she follows him on Instagram and we have this kind of ongoing joke that uh, <laughs> we, had, we, uh, we always ask like, what would Chuck Reagan do in this situation? Uh, because he always posts these ridiculous outdoors things. So that, uh, mm -hmm. totally, totally makes sense. Um, that it fits in with your game. So very yeah. cool. There were actually times where, you know, I might need to talk with him about one thing or another and was unable to, cause he was just out of cell phone range and in the country fishing somewhere. <laughs> probably killing a bear with his bare hands. Yeah, probably. I think right. mostly, mostly fishing. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I think that's his thing primarily. So, um, okay. So that's, that's interesting and cool. Um, one of the, one of the things I wanted to talk about too, is the, the protagonist has a dog companion, which you kind of mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, how does the dog factor into the game and, uh, why a dog? Well, I mean, I guess like this, the, why a dog is, there's probably a really dumb, simple answer, which is just like, we're a bunch of dog people on the team. We love dogs. And uh, <laughs> I just, you know, want to have a game with a dog in it. Um, but also, you know, if you've got somebody like this sort of silent protagonist out in the, in the wilderness, um, it's like a really lonely thing. And I think that a dog is a really great um, companion uh, for people. I mean, for a lot of reasons. Like, dogs are good companions because we have specifically bred them to be good companions for millennia. Right? Um, like the dogs and people have been hanging out for thousands of years. Um, and they're like extremely empathetic to people, you know, like they understand us really well. Uh, so I thought it would be like just a really good point to have the dog be a companion that could be expressive, you know, and could be animated in a way that sort of reflects the mood of the world or like what's going on, um, that could help sort of express the emotional experience um outside of like the character but without getting into the realm of needing to deal with like 
voice acting or like human behavior or whatnot. Like a dog can still behave in a way that's like a little easier to make convincing, you know, as as just an AI than say, you know, a person. Right. And um and really like the companion character was not when you've got six people working on a project, you you pick how big a bite you're gonna take on any one thing. Um, and companion character was not like what the game was about at its core. So, you know, picking something that's kind of doable, uh, you know, and achievable from a production standpoint is really important as well. Um, but yeah, I guess that's sort of, it was kind of for something that's been, you know, a fair amount of work, it was probably kind of <laughs> poorly considered in the first place. It was just kind of like, yeah, there should be a dog. Yep. There should be a dog. And there wasn't like a great mechanical <laughs> justification or anything. So, for so it. The, yeah. So there's no real gameplay with the dog. It's just kind of well, hanging out with you or is there's a, the there's gameplay? a couple functions like the, the, um, like the core, the initial pitch mechanical functions that the dog has a backpack. Um, actually it just started out as a generalized companion animal that sort of morphed into a dog. Um, but the dog has a backpack, and anything that's stored in that backpack when you die uh, will be available to you when you start up a new game. Like, this is a, a roguelike, and there is permadeath. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's, the dog is kind of this like little being who always has these supplies that carry over from your previous game, as long as you've moved them to the dog's bag. And additionally, like, the dog calls out uh, alerts in the environment, you know, helps point out things that you might be able to collect or uh, threats that might, you know, appear in the environment and whatnot. Um, but it's primarily like uh, uh, Aesop is like a warning system and uh, a uh, inventory slots. <laughs> gotcha. And uh, the trailer that I saw for your game, uh, I, it brought up a really kind of cool, lonely feeling when the, the player character dies and the dog is just there kind of by the player's side and, that's the only thing that you kind of see at the last bit. Yep. It's a great way to help sell that um, sort of feeling of loneliness and, you know, survival and stuff like that. Yep. That was the intent. <laughs> um, sure. Mission accomplished. Uh, so something that I also wanted to talk to you about was, you know, the permadeath thing. Um, we've had a few people on this show, uh, like the guy, uh, Chris Barrasso from darkest dungeon. And um, we just talked to a few other people that were doing MMO things that, we're a little bit more hardcore and uh, permadeath is definitely one of those things. So when you were coming up with this game, were you kind of thinking we're going to go a little bit more on the, the harsh side um, and do survival games? Do they need that mechanic? Do you think to, to actually move them forward and be called a survival game? Um, that's a good question. I guess I hadn't like, we largely came at permadeath from, the point of view and same with procedural generation of wanting to create something that, you know, scope wise was something a small group uh, could make reasonably um, that would still provide like a lot of fun for players over, you know, a lot of time. And I think that like challenge is, is a great way to do that. And procedural generation is a great way to do that. And permadeath is definitely like part and parcel of the challenge, you know? Um, And uh, I think it's a great, a great tool for creating a game that enforces learning, you know, mm-hmm. uh, which is certainly like what you see in a lot of roguelikes is that, you know, when you die, um, hopefully you, it feels like it's your fault and hopefully it feels like you learned something from it and feel like you could, you know, make different choices the next time around. And hopefully the next time you play, you know, you'll make slightly different choices based on that experience um, and continue to sort of gain mastery of, of the game. Um, 
I mean, I guess I'm trying to think now of if there are survival games, if there's any really noteworthy survival games that don't feature permadeath. Um, I mean, like, I think the biggest one is, the biggest ones are probably Daisy and Don't Starve, and those are definitely permadeath yeah. games. I th- um, I th- most of the, I mean, uh, yeah, that's kind of the reason I was asking, because I've noticed within the genre, it is, I think to make you feel like you are, vulnerable and everything is more dangerous permadeath is is a good way to do that because you're like no all my things they're gone you know you have that that loss of importance because if everything comes back then you know it's you're going to be a little bit more brazen in how you play the game so yeah i mean it's like sort of the same question about survival horror games as they like move into more you know we've seen i mean this isn't recent but you know, a number of years ago, uh, survival horror sort of moved into more action games, maybe from like the Xbox PS2 era into PS3 360. And you saw fewer and fewer like sort of harsh, um, you know, uh, uh, survival horror. And I think it's like maybe there's a similar tension that gets lost there. I don't know. I think it'd be an interesting challenge to sort of take on. Like, could you do um, a survival game that doesn't feature permadeath like i'm actually curious i was just playing uh the long dark um their xbox early access uh right before this call and um right now they're just in the their permadeath sandbox mode but i'm really curious to see what they're going to be doing with their um they're doing a campaign mode as well and to me like a campaign mode sounds like it might be something where there's not permadeath or there's like checkpoints or something like that i i really don't know i'm i'm but I'm guessing that that might be the case. Um, right. But it's, we're actually going to we're actually going to talk to them in the next episode. So oh, cool. All right. I'll, yeah. I'll ask for you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that would be a really fascinating challenge to take on for sure. So um, I also wanted to talk to you about influences from other games and uh, what were brought over to this game. Uh, do you? I'm assuming you played games like The Forest, and you know, you were just saying Long Dark and. Yep. Daisy and Rust and all that fun stuff. Um, anything in particular that you brought over from other games that you thought like, oh, this is really interesting. I want to explore this mechanic more or anything like that. Well, I mean, I guess like the very impetus for the game was brought over in a sense. Like it was just for my first experience playing Daisy. I, I actually kind of had a lot of fun just sort of like when there was nobody around, like on low population servers. Um, and I think I was even playing at a time when zombies were broken um, so I just kind of like wandering around these abandoned, you know, towns and stuff and little, you know, coastal places and rummaging through, uh, through drawers and cabinets and finding stuff. And like, I just was sort of like, I spent a few hours doing that and I was like, this is actually kind of fun. Like just kind of rummaging and, you know, uh, finding the things that I need. And it just got me thinking like that there could be an interesting challenge to just kind of delete the like the PVP, delete the combat largely from a game like that and just make it more about the exploration and, um, you know, resource gathering. Uh, so, I mean, I guess that's one of the starting points. Now, I say that, of course, and we've kind of like, there is more action elements now in the Flame and the Flood in that, you know, like I think wolves are far more prevalent than I would have initially expected, but, you know, and that's sort of the process of you make something and, you change your plan when <laughs> when you learn that like well there's I've actually found more fun in this other thing. Um, so 
there's definitely that. I mean, there's, you know, tons of like little uh, mechanical bits and pieces here. Like, oh, well, what do they do with the UI? Or like, how is this handled? Or what key is this mapped to? Or something like that. Because it's a pretty, you know, I don't even know if it counts as a genre yet because the representation of survival games is pretty diverse. But, you know, you still just want to see like what your peers have done, you know, like what other games have done. And if there's something that seems like, well, oh, this is a really good use of like how to, you know, collect something or something like that. Um, then cool, we'll just do that. Like there's no point in reinventing the wheel and everything we do. But we also, you know, I play a lot of everything. So I sort of pull stuff from all over the place. Like just the act of like searching something that's based on Dragon Age Inquisition, you know, like it's, it's just a hold button that has a circular fill that uh, fills over time that opens a container that lists all the items with a take all at top. I mean, like functionally that's the same as searching a container in, um, in Dragon Age Inquisition. I think it's the same button mappings by default as well. Right. Um, so, you know, like, just because we're doing like a small scale survival game doesn't mean that we're also not looking at like, you know, all sorts of other stuff as well, you know. And I think like you'll see that in any game. Like I'd be willing to bet that the active reload in Gears of War came straight from like golf swing mechanics and, you know, uh, from Tiger Woods or something. Right. Um, so something that I, that I found kind of interesting about your game was you you guys decided to make it single player. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of these games now are are multiplayer. You're saying PvP related. Um, what kind of drove you to that point? Was it just figuring out that the rummaging throughout, you know, houses and stuff like that in Daisy was, was just a fun mechanic and you could make a strong single player game with that? Or was there a, uh, a problem that you had with the PVP stuff or, or multiplayer or what was the consideration when you were thinking about that? Well, I mean, I think like the big problem with multiplayer is that it's really complicated to do, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, it, it is hard for six dudes to, to handle something. like I that. I mean, that's it at the core. Like, I guess I hadn't even really thought of it as like a multiplayer game, um, to begin with. Uh, so like it, it occurred to us, you know, pretty early on when we were talking about it, that it would be cool to support co-op, and then we pretty much decided to shelve that because it just didn't fit within like the scope and the the time frame that we wanted to stick with. Um, and then, you know, if you shelve something like that early, it becomes really, really hard to add back in um, later on. But I guess it just wasn't like like we're in the process of building a studio, you know, and building a team, and we didn't have, you know, like basically from the the point where we started, we had, you know, the money in our collective savings accounts and like nothing else in front of us. So it was pretty important to kind of be as scope constrained as possible and, you know, make a game that that fit with, like to figure out a game that we wanted to make that fit within like what we could make. And uh, I think, you know, a lot of the initial ideas and things that we were looking at felt like, it felt right to make a single player game and it felt like a great fit and it seemed like this was very doable. Um, you know, like one of my early sort of tonal influences for this was definitely the road, um, the, you know, the Cormac McCarthy novel. Right. Uh, and that's all about like this desolation and loneliness and whatnot. And I feel like that sometimes like mood wise can be lost when you've got, you know, a couple you know, a bunch of hammy people kind of running around together in a multiplayer environment. Yeah. Um, like, I don't think that you get kind of that sense of dread and ennui, 
uh, in rust, <laughs> you know, in the way that like the, like the road, the novel, you know, communicates it. Um, and I think in part, it's just cause you've got a bunch of goofballs, you know, kind of screwing around with each other. Um, I mean, I do think for what it's worth, those experiences do happen in Daisy, um, uh, more so. Um, yeah. I'm not sure why. I mean, maybe it's just because there's not like the, the building aspect so much. It's just like a bunch of creepers hunting each other in the, <laughs> in a massive map or something. Um, but yeah, uh, I think, you know, it was a mix of, it was just conceived to be a single player game. Like it didn't even really occur to me to be multiplayer early, uh, from, from early on for any number of reasons. You know, like I think there's something that happens when you make games for a while, which is you get, you get a pretty good understanding of like what's feasible with the resources that you have and you sort of auto like change you, you auto, um, what's, what am I looking for here? Like, as you brainstorm ideas, you don't even like let ideas bubble up that you can't do, you know? Right. So in, in our case, you know, I mean, where this first started, I was kind of thinking like, well, am I going to build this by myself? You know, this is, um, like the very initial thoughts about it. And then like, there's no way I would even begin to take on multiplayer. Like I'm not even an engineer, you know? I just, right. Well, I, well, what's, what's interesting to me though, is you're coming at this from a very pragmatic, like what can I actually accomplish with the team that I have? Uh, sometimes that doesn't happen with people, right? They're like, Oh man, I want to make the next AAA, whatever with like 10 dudes. And it's, yeah, weird. there's going to be a universe. Uh, I mean, the no man's sky guys are actually doing it, which is amazing. But yeah, there's like, it's going to be mass multiplayer. It's going to be cities. It's going to be player housing. Yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's great that you guys are taking that approach and, uh, and thinking of stuff. So uh, that led me to two things I wanted to ask you. One, how did you get your start in the games industry? And two, how did you guys start the studio? Sure. Um, I mean, for me, like my start is not exactly like a particularly unique story. Like I, um, I made maps and mods for many years uh, in the past. Like I made maps for Unreal Tournament and was on a mod team for Half Life Two. And uh, like everybody else on that mod team, I ended up getting hired by an actual game development company to get you know paid as a level designer to make stuff. Um, and that was basically it. You know, like I. I just sort of did it as a hobby uh, for a long time after, you know, getting out of school and having an art degree, which meant I was, you know, utterly unemployable and um, just working like a tech support job by day and building maps by night and taking, you know, participating in that, that community and whatnot until, uh, I mean, I got lucky too in that the studio that ended up hiring me for my first gig was this place called Chaos in New York, which uh, if you're like a were a PC gamer in early 2000s, you probably were familiar at least with Desert Combat, which was this Battlefield 1942 mod um, that that team, that's where they got their start. Um, and that's kind of what became Battlefield 2, like sort of a modern version of Battlefield. Um, <laughs> right. So they were sort of the first ones to realize that. And they actually managed to parlay that into being a studio. Um, but it was lucky for me because, you know, they were a bunch of like the core team was just a bunch of mod guys. So like in pretty recent memory. So they were pretty willing to just say like, Oh yeah, you're a mod maker. Cool. We like that. We're going to hire you, you know, right. whereas, you know, I think like that's a lot harder to get your foot in the door at a big studio as a mod guy. 
Yeah, I was going to ask, actually, if, if you think that's still a relevant way. Part of One of the things we do on this podcast is I always like to uh, point out different ways that people, A, can get in, and then B, how do they get in these days? Uh, and so do you still think that's could be relevant as a way to get in? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, I think, like... Uh, you know, I'd pick and choose. I, there's there's all these different routes you could go with that sort of stuff, though, too. Like, I know there, there are guys who, like, in my case, his story, like, my my job was level designer. And, like, an um, amateur level designer right now could be making levels for CSGO or TF2 and actually be, like, making a pretty good living uh, just as a hobbyist that way. So, you know, there's even opportunities or artists the same have the, some of the same opportunities making cosmetics for those same games or Dota 2 or what have you. Right. Uh, like Valve is enabling a lot of people to not even need to land a job. Um, but, uh, you know, those who, um, like those are, those are out there and you can make stuff and prove that like, hey, I can make something that stands up under competitive play and is commercially viable and whatnot. Like I'd hire somebody who, you know, I mean, not... Not right now. I can't hire anybody. But uh, like when I was at my last job and hired, you know, lots of people, I'd totally hire somebody who had proven themselves to be, you know, assuming they weren't like a total goon in every other way. Um, right. Like if they had, if they had proven themselves, like that they could, you know, swing it as a mod maker. Like awesome. That's great. Like that indicates, you know, not only like design skill, but also just sort of being multi disciplinary in terms of your skill set as well right. which is really good and motivation um, right because uh, yeah if you, sure. if you have the ability to get your ass out there learn stuff you know maybe on your own uh and then put it out in front of people and then get feedback and adjust it and that's uh that's a lot of work and effort and time so i mean that does oh, make yeah. a lot of sense you know yeah it's a ton of work it shows somebody who's got who's got the drive to do that like when they're when they stand to gain basically nothing uh material from it right. uh, i think that speaks a lot to sort of their passion for the work and whatnot which is also a big plus so yeah. i think it's a, a totally viable route to go for sure okay uh, but so, uh so you got your start by doing that and you worked at chaos um what, what was the rest of your career trajectory up until you know working on your current project yeah i mean i, I worked at chaos for a number of years it was like a um, you know, and just sort of got promoted up the ladder to the point where I was like a uh, lead level designer on this game called Homefront that was being worked on there. Yeah. Uh, but before that shipped, I actually got uh, approached by um, uh, Bill Gardner, who was the, at the time the, I believe, design director uh, at uh, Irrational Games, which had, you know, their previous title had been Bioshock at that point. And he wanted to know if I was interested in you know, coming to be a designer up there, you know, Bioshock to me was like one of the games that defined like this past decade of games for me. Like I thought it was just this pivotal work and being approached and given the opportunity, you know, work with the team that made that was like, I couldn't say no. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a fantastic so, game. Yeah. So they liked me and offered me a job. So I picked up and uh, moved to Boston and took a job at Irrational where I worked on um, Bioshock Infinite for uh, about three years and then the DLC for a year after that. And then um, the studio uh, like basically closed. I, there was a handful of people left. Uh, they haven't announced their new new name yet, but like Irrational as a concern ended. 
so at that point, I found myself with, you know, I don't know, maybe like around 90 other people uh, out of work in Boston. Um, and there really wasn't much in terms of, you know, jobs available for game developers in town. Because um, the studios that were here, you know, had been downsizing. There had been layoffs that, you know, the other two, in, you know, recent memory. So, uh, which is, you know, harmonics and turbines. So there wasn't really any work to be had there. Um, there was a couple people who stuck around and like found stuff at Rockstar. Uh, but you know, for the most part it was, you know, pick up and leave or get out of games, um, or start your own team. Um, so I chose the last one. Um, cause it seemed like a great opportunity, you know, I was able to convince a bunch of really talented people to <laughs> essentially take the leap with me and, uh, you know, go work for no money and the promise of, you know, future profit someday when uh, our independent video game is successful. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that I mean, that was basically it. I got, like, just right place, right time, right bunch of people um, got together and were all willing to sort of take a risk on this thing. Um, so that's, that's kind of where, that's been my my video game career basically that's about 10 years uh, altogether okay and you guys were on kickstarter correct yep yeah yep. so um I've, I've talked to a few people now that have done the kickstarter route um, some of the guys i was saying darkest dungeon uh chasm um there's uh it seems to be a, a you know growing way to kind of get games uh out there so when you were thinking about launching one of these campaigns, what were you taking in, into consideration to make sure that this was a successful endeavor? Um, God, I could probably talk. I'm going to think about like what's the, the shortest version of this because we did a lot of work leading up to it, um, like took a lot of stuff into consideration, uh, ranging from like the precise wording of the uh, – specific part of the campaign that's shown in the badge that appears on the front page to, um, you know, doing a huge amount of research into like other campaigns, their trends, like what they, their performance over time was like, what their videos were like, um, looked at a lot of projects that succeeded in the range that we were looking at and a lot that failed that were asking for a range that we were looking for a lot that asked for the range that we were looking for that dramatically exceeded it. Um, you know, I was, was trying to gather everything I could about like successes and failures and you know what tiers worked the best and where were the most revenue generated and like what was the breakdown of what was offered and what felt fair versus you know was actually like worth it in terms of um, you know the like selling doing like a $500 tier when you're selling like $480 worth of physical goods to manufacture would be like a dumb tier uh, so there, you know, like a lot of work into trying to sort of balance out like, well, what's going to be like valuable and worthwhile versus the price that we can produce it for and so on and so forth. Um, there's a lot of looking at like videos and whatnot. I mean, I can tell you some of our conclusions, like our video is no talking heads for one. <laughs> like I didn't really want to do that. Um, like I just felt that, I guess this is a little abstract, but it felt like the stuff that succeeds tends to succeed because it's got a really compelling pitch for what it is, you know? Right. And what a thing is on Kickstarter, unless the head that's talking on the video is a head that everybody knows, 
you know, mm-hmm. or a head that's behind beloved franchise in genre that is no longer represented. Um, then that's not like a super compelling pitch, you know, like helping, like if you saw me, I'm just like, I'm just a game development dude. I'm in my mid thirties. I've got a beard and wear glasses. Like I'm fulfilling my dream to make a game of my own is not like a compelling pitch to, <laughs> to somebody, you know, <laughs> right. like yeah. there's nothing emotionally particularly moving about that. So, um, you know, that's why we chose to really try and make the game lead, uh, you know, we actually didn't even mention that we were had worked on titles that people would know um, up until like right before we launched, and we got a bunch of feedback from people that were just like, "You guys are crazy if you don't mention that." You know, <laughs> that you were some of the leads and directors on Infinite and Halo and that sort of stuff. Yeah, no, I think if anything, if you can use that to kind of leverage the fact that not only that it's just saying like, yeah, I worked on Bioshock Evident, but but also just to say like we've done this before and we can do it again. You know, yeah, I think that was right? more, that's the more important thing. Is like Kickstarter just takes. I think it takes a huge amount of confidence on the part of anybody who's making a pledge that they're gonna believe that this team is going to say what they're going to do, even when they don't really have anything to show, like they might have a video or something like that. Um, and like, I think that's a huge leap of faith for somebody who's backing something on Kickstarter. And, you know, I think like that's something I, I deeply appreciate that we had, you know, like 7,400 people who are willing to like just open up their wallets and say like, this looks like a cool thing and I want, and I believe in it and I want to see it happen. So yeah, I totally agree. Like, I think that, us saying like, look, we've we've all done this for a whole bunch of years. Like, we know how to make a video game. Um, is uh, I think was actually the right thing to do. Um, but you know, I, it was one of those things where like I kind of wanted to. I've gotten less concerned about it because it helps <laughs> get get me like interviews and like on the phone with people and whatnot. Um, but right. you know, I want to talk with. Uh, but you know, initially, I kind of really wanted like the game to just stand for itself. You know, and didn't yeah. want to just be like, oh, I did this thing, so pay attention to this. But, you know, ultimately, I guess as an indie, like, there's so many, there's so many studios, there's so many games, and there's so much competition that you kind of got to use everything, you know, like you got to use your full utility belt of everything you got to, you know, try and make yourself stand out. And I guess in our case, part of that is, you know, what we've done in the past. Yeah, are you kidding me? The, the reason that I've uh, got, the last maybe three jobs was because I knew somebody who knew somebody. And if mm-hmm. I, if I didn't say like, Hey, can you talk to these guys and let them know I'm not a terrible person? Uh, I, I you know, I might've gotten in from it, but it really does kind of lend itself like any sort of opportunity you can get to make further yourself in, in that regard, I think is, is well worth it, especially like from the indie perspective, right? It's not like you have a huge marketing team that's going to do all the work for you and, yeah, no. handle that sort of I'm stuff. The marketing so. team. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I mean, absolutely, you got to use everything you can. But that's just from from my perspective, anyway. Um, okay. So uh, we were talking a little bit about the art before, and you were saying you wanted to convey that um, sense of solitude uh, and loneliness. So I, I love the art style. I'm a huge fan of like the animation in the game. Looks great. The wolf design in that game, fantastic. Like the the world itself it just it's beautiful um but the the question that i have now that i've i've complimented you on this is um is it have you met any sort of 
uh, a critique that maybe it looks too stylized to convey that feeling or it has it been something that's just been met with positivity the whole time no i mean it's not totally positive like I, i've certainly seen you know some people like we've shown it a bunch of places publicly at this point i've certainly seen like kind of a this looks like a baby game or something <laughs> which is fine like i, yeah. I guess like one of the things that's nice about working on a project like this and with a team the size of ours is that it doesn't need to appeal to everybody and that's totally fine. I don't need to be upset or worried about that. Um, I mean, I think that actually in some ways the the richness of the world and the colorfulness of it like kind of helps in some ways just because it creates contrast, you know? Like, And I think that that's more... Like it's... <laughs> In some ways, it's sadder to see something like adorable die <laughs> than it is to just see like, you know, like some rickety old thing crumble to dust in a rickety world that's all like gray and wind blasted and sun bleached or what have you, you know? Um, so I think that I like the contrast a lot. And I think it's it's worked really well to sort of have this like kind of really, you know, bright and colorful and and um an illustrated world that is illustrating in a really like almost cheerful way some really really sad you know stuff like you know most most playthroughs are the story of scout slowly dying you know or or maybe eking by until some series of catastrophes befalls her and ultimately she dies so it's like the story is always sad almost like most of the time, I've got like data. We are, you know, we have backers from Kickstarter playing the game now, and I've got data about how many people have completed the, the, um, the actual like amount of content that we have in the this first beta, and it's like point oh three percent of playthroughs reach the end. Wow. Uh, so yeah, it's like. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> not most most of the stories are the stories of, of a character dying and the, i don't know i i think it works it works really well i think if it was like just a really grim aesthetic it would just be so so grim of a game that i just think it might it wouldn't be that much fun you know right. well i like think I, it, it, there was so um we were working on Wildstar a while ago and we had this dungeon um, character that would go through and he was this tiny guy that would float and he had like a little casting wand and he didn't really look all that imposing. Um, but he would do this thing where he would kind of lock you in place. And if you didn't have your friends interrupt him, he would just one shot kill you. And it was after like four seconds. And so it got to this point where everybody saw that dude and Mm -hmm. they're like, screw that guy. I am scared shitless of him. Right. Even though he looks like this adorable little floating thing that was kind of going around. So I think the the gameplay can often sell a lot of the vibe mm-hmm. that you're going for, even if if your game does have you know an adorable character that's going through it, right? So, I yeah, I, I, it's yeah. funny. It, like it's funny that you're saying that some people are like, "Well, it looks like a baby game," because there's uh, there's definitely a group of people out there that I think would do that, and it, if if that's what stops them from playing the game, then I, I kind of feel bad for them in a way, you know? Yeah, I mean, for what it's worth, like my my brother is like. I'm going to call him out. He's been a, like, he's a big MMO player and has been for years and years and years. And he never played WoW because it looked too much like a baby game. Like he just didn't like the aesthetics. So whatever you can't get everybody like it's, and that's fine. It doesn't, doesn't bother me. Um, (laughs) Okay. 
So, and I mean, I think one of the other things too, like this is something I, so years and years ago, um, we were interviewing this guy for a lead level designer position. Uh, and I believe at the time he had been, he was like the lead world builder or lead level designer in World of Warcraft. And one thing that I thought was really interesting was he was talking about like player population and how it gets distributed uh, mm-hmm. throughout the world of Azeroth. And um, one thing he had said is they just found consistently, like no matter what they did, that the data showed that players were always more drawn to verdant areas, you know, areas with a lot of life and a lot of green colors, you know, Mm. um, and a lot of foliage and that sort of stuff. Even if like mechanically the, the rewards and stuff that you would get from like Desolus are utterly the same as like the, you know, the quests and rewards that you get from Stranglethorn Vale, it's always more people in Stranglethorn. Um, and they attribute it to just the fact that people like, like you want to inhabit living worlds, you know, like you want to inhabit places that don't look just like death. Right. Um, so, you know, in, in some ways, like I think that, like that wasn't really like part of our calculation or anything, but I think it is like something sort of fundamental about, you know, the preferences of, you know, when you make something, what you want to make. Right. So uh, you were saying before that uh, 0.3% of people have made it to the end of the content that you guys have. 0.03. Um, 0.03. Sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, 0.03. So what is, from your perspective, what is the, the point that you want players to get to out of, out of the game? Is it that you're going to have sort of an end um, point and then once they get there, it's like, okay, you did it in X amount of time or you just, you did it. Congrats. Like what, what is the goal that you're kind of going for, for players when they, when they play the game? I think it's more, you did it. Congrats. I mean, we do, we are doing an endless mode. So that's like, if somebody really wants to sort of iron man it and, you know, figure out how, how far, how long they can survive, how many days they can go for, like, that's cool. We're supporting that. Um, but there is a core experience that, um, my intent is to be around three hours or so to complete. Um, but you know, that's highly subject to change based on tuning and feedback and whatnot. Um, and in that case, like my goal is much more the experience of like FTL or something like that, where it's really, really hard to, to ever take down like the capital ship in FTL. Um, but when you do like, it's, it's just satisfying because it was so hard, you know, and it was so like mechanically challenging and you need to understand the game so well in order to hit that point. Um, but you've at that point with FTL, you reach the end. It's like, all right, we'll try it again. Do it with a different chip. See if you can do it better, you know, see if you can have a better ending. But um, like that's sort of the, the intent uh, for that. So um, you were talking about making this, you know, an, an arduous journey, making it difficult. Uh, how do you guys tune difficulty? Uh, is it just that you you make the game and you're like, okay, I I got to the end and I know this game like the back of my hand, so I think that's difficult enough, and then we'll put it in front of people? Or how do you kind of look at that? Like, what is the what is the impetus for your difficulty setting? And that's a good question. I mean, that's something I think we're figuring out right now. Is like we've got got it out there in people's hands. Like the initial beta launch is basically like me saying that. As a designer of the game, with perfect understanding of the systems, I feel that this game is balanced fairly, which is to say, like, it's very hard. Um, <laughs> and I think that, you know, one thing that I really, we don't have a specific plan for, but I would really like to look into is at the very least having, like, a, you know, like the 
the classic mode and the, you know, the visitor or tourist mode or whatever, like something that allows people to have like a, a lighter experience. Because I think there's a lot of people that are drawn to the game that don't necessarily care about the hardcore survival side of it. Right. Um, but I think like the, like much like Halo or something, I think that the intended tuning is the hard one, you know? Right. Um, and will be, I mean, as far as how we do it, a lot of it's just like looking at, at feedback and, you know, at this point, thankfully, like I'm, I'm actually really excited to have this backer beta going on. Cause I've got, you know, thousands of people that are providing me data and hundreds that are providing like, uh, feedback in form of like, you know, posts and emails and so on and so forth. And dozens that are providing feedback by literally like posting videos of themselves playing it on YouTube. Um, so from all that, I'm just sort of making decisions about like, like now I've got a wealth of data, which is fantastic and is allowing me to decide a lot more about like, well, how, you know, how do we want to change this? Like right now I'm seeing the overwhelming number of deaths are due to drowning, which is due to the raft breaking apart. And in part that's because there's a bug, um, that wouldn't allow you to craft parts to fix your raft. So like basically it had a health bar that would never be replenishable. Oh, uh, anytime that you crashed. Um, but then also I'm looking at like the number of times that somebody, uh, even found the components that they needed for it. And I'm like, well, there's not even like, even if they could craft the thing, they would not, they're not even finding the parts. Um, so I'm like easing that up a little bit, I think for our next, uh, our next fix. Um, but you know, I think it's going to go back and forth a while and, um, that's, you know, one thing that's really interesting to be about like betas and early access and that kind of thing is that I have like this live product that I can, I can now like muck around with and work on and whatnot. But, you know, I think a lot of it is just the tuning process. Like I'm a level designer by trade. Like I'm not, uh, a systems designer. Um, right. So like my spreadsheet Kung Fu is not strong. Um, like I have, there's a lot of, mathy spreadsheets that I have kicking around and whatnot, but a lot of the tuning for me has just been like sort of feel, you know, like, right. does it feel like there's enough stuff? Does it feel like there's not enough stuff? Am I getting enough of what I need? Am I, you know, is this like tuned punishingly enough or fairly enough that like I'm, I'm not solely reliant on like the luck of a dice roll for this to succeed and so on and so forth. But I mean, I'm pretty happy actually with the tuning at the moment for just like being a hard tuning because what we're seeing is that the people who are able to complete the game, like are able to complete the, the, the backer beta content have developed some pretty sophisticated strategies and are able to replicate their success. Um, so to me, like that's, that's a great sign for a roguelike, you know, mm -hmm. is that cause like the intent I think for this sort of game should be, I mean, it's not always, and it's not for every game, because some games have like grinding and like long-term player growth and whatnot. But for me, the one of the goals is that a player with sufficient skill and know-how, or sufficient skill or luck or what have you, should be able to complete the game reliably every time they start a new game. And it shouldn't be predicated on there being like any sort of mechanical gates along the way. You know? Right. Like it shouldn't be predicated upon... Uh, well, I have ground this game for, you know, 150 hours. So now I've unlocked all the, you know, the character upgrades that I get to start with. Um, 
and now I can actually complete it. Or, you know, the other side is like the random number generator has actually given me the drop that I need for this, the item that allows me to actually complete the game. And if that doesn't happen, I can't win. Right. Um, so for me to see, like right now, it, it is kind of start from scratch every time. Um, and to see people being able to like have devised strategies that allow them to replicate their success tells me that at the very least, like that part is working. Um, now the flip side is I am also getting people saying like, I like what I played so far, but it got too frustrating. I died too much. So I'm not going to be playing anymore, you know, until there's another update or something. Um, and that's also really, really valuable feedback to me. Yeah. I mean, what, what percentage do you consider that point where you're you're going to lower the difficulty as a result or or do you kind of go you know what i'm going to make because you were kind of talking about this before a little bit like maybe we'll make a mode that's a little bit easier is it like okay we're going to do difficulty tuning is it going to be no we got one thing and if you can't make it to the end that's just how the game works no i mean i think there's certain things like i think the raft stuff is frustrating a lot of people um and i think that that's an area of very specific pain that i want to alleviate um, but then there's a question of like how you alleviate it. So I'm getting a lot of suggestions about like, well, the raft should be able to take more hits or the river shouldn't be as dense and there shouldn't be as many obstacles. And I don't, I don't actually agree with those pieces of feedback. What I think is that you should have more plentiful abilities to restore the health of your raft. Mm-hmm. Um, so rather than, you know, make that part of the game easier, I want to keep it hard and I want to like let people keep crashing a lot. Um, but I just want to make sure that they have more opportunities to like build the thing back up. Um, and, uh, you know, so it just becomes like a more dynamic, like the raft health is going up and down and up and down and up and down. Um, and I think that, you know, I totally understand those frustrations because it is pretty challenging. And also we haven't done a lot of optimization work yet. So if your computer isn't like pretty good, um, there's a decent chance that like going down the river, you're going to, you know, hit hitches and whatnot, which can like, can't send you careening into, uh, you know, an obstacle, which can like have some pretty devastating effects. So. Absolutely. Now you were talking about listening to player feedback. Have players done anything that has, uh, surprised you in your implementation so far? Not a huge amount. I mean, there was actually, um, somebody wrote up a really nice strategy guide and posted it in like our, um, uh, our um, yeah, our forums. They're just a Google group. <laughs> Sorry, it's about midnight here for me. Um, <laughs> um, and the degree and sophistication of their strategies was really good, and it involved like certain things that I had hadn't even really thought about. Like there are certain little bits of tuning values and stuff that were just total throwaway. You know, like that I had put in is just like a first pass and totally forgot about like for example dandelion tea is this material this um you know consumable that you can craft uh which has um like it it has medicinal properties i think it's i forget the affliction off the top of my head that it cures it's like blood flukes or something um but also i threw in like it gives you a a 10 percent boost to your energy your fatigue value right uh like it you know, it's like Red Bull, you know, it, it gets you Caffeine. going. Yeah. Totally forgot about that. And then this person that strategy guide was like recommending that you brew up dandelion tea and hold on to it for times when you can't find shelter and you're down to your last bit of fatigue. Cause then you can gulp a couple of those and it'll give you enough uh, stamina to make it to the next location where you could potentially find shelter. And I'm like, 
cool. I didn't intend that, but now I'm keeping it for sure. <laughs> you know, yeah. like that was just sort of a, I don't even know why I put that in there. It was just like, you know, you, you get the, the tool that allows you to import a spreadsheet of items and then you've got this list of items that you've wanted to do. And, you know, it's a hundred items long and you've got a spreadsheet with like, you know, 15 columns of data and you just start like, all right, 15 times a hundred, I'm just going to start making choices real quick here, you know, and like not every one of those is going to make a lot of sense. Uh, like today I rolled through and made, um, most types of hides and stuff, not edible. Cause it just, it was making the context menus too messy and nobody actually ever wants to eat a deer hide. You no, know, that maybe <laughs> has happened once in the wilderness. Yeah, sure. I mean, but it, I think it's also, uh, does it make sense to the average person too? Is something yeah. that you should take into consideration as well. Yeah. I think like the only clothing item that I'm rema- that I'm leaving edible is boots. Cause why not? Yeah. Cause like you eat your boots. Like that's, <laughs> That's Valley Forge. It's classic, you know. <laughs> so um, I wanted to talk to you also about the core game loop, which is, you know, it, for people that aren't, you know, aware of what a game loop is, it's like the the main little mechanics that you keep doing that you do over and over and over again and can improve on or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so specifically with this game, how did you kind of start out with the core loop and identify that and then start testing it? within, you know, you guys as developers to, to ensure that this was going to be a fun product? I mean, I think that, like, the core, core loop of, well, like, the river stuff was a little bit unknown because we looked at a lot of other games that involved, like, water and watercraft, and, and by a lot, I mean all of them, and by all of them, I mean Wind Waker, uh, Blood Wake, and Tubin. <laughs> oh, Tubin, um, man. Yeah. All right. <laughs> there hasn't there's like there's a whole bunch of various indie games with boats and stuff coming out now, but when we started this even there really wasn't anything. So that was like a little more of an unknown uh and we just knew we needed to sort of like iterate and pound on it and that's one of those like So there's a couple things that we've done. That's one of them where I feel like we hew a little closer to like a AAA mentality than a indie mentality mm-hmm. and by that I mean like I think a really healthy and common kind of indie games mentality is like you find a really cool mechanic or a really fun mechanic and you often find it in like a, a game jam type setting or something like that. Like it's quick and it's easy and you've iterated like very rapidly on it and you're like, all right, this is this is a great nugget and we can build a game out of this. Whereas like the AAA mentality is more like we know that we can make this good if we you know plow millions of dollars worth of effort into you know this problem. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like, having worked on, like, large budget shooters, that's 100% the case. Like, it's not your early prototype. You're like, whoa, this is going to be amazing. Um, it's, you know, it only comes about once you've spent so much time and money and effort to, like, create beautiful environments that are well-lit and AIs that are fully animated and are, like, uh, adhering to cover and, you know, have specific firing behaviors and patterns and whatnot and, like, this really great feedback loop on, the, like, the player's weapons and all this stuff. And, like, that's just money, 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 money to spend. Um, and, you know, in our case, like, the the rafting thing, like, there wasn't a one-day prototype where, like, oh, this is great. It was definitely a well, we need to build a river and we need to build a flow generation and then we need to build a little physics object in it and then we need to build the way that you mush it around um, and then hopefully we'll find the fun. And um, I think we have, and that, that, but that was certainly like a, 
more, here's the idea and we're just going to plow into it until we are happy with it um, kind of approach. Uh, as far as like the gathering, crafting, that kind of stuff, like I think we hew close enough to systems and like Don't Starve or something like that that I was reasonably confident that it's like, all right, we just kind of, you know, replicate like the core feel of that experience of like one around a space and there's like threats and things you need to avoid and you know things that you need to find and things that you need to attract and like moving things that you need to capture and like things that you need to craft in order to capture those things and so on and so forth that it seemed like that was a pretty proven loop so i wasn't super worried about it uh and that's basically what we've done gotcha uh, for that uh so um the next kind of question, well, I actually I've got, I've got two more and then, uh, I think we're going to wrap up our conversation today. Good sir. Cause, uh, you need to sleep and, <laughs> <That I do. laughs> and, and I've got a kiddo I got to go attend to. But, uh, the first was, and you hit on this a little bit, the differences between working triple a and indie, uh, wh- what do you like about both and what do you dislike about both? Uh, and then lastly, how do you know when, the product is is kind of ready for prime time to be seen, played, that sort of thing. Great. I'll start with that one because in both instances, it's when you're out of money, <laughs> basically. <laughs> um, I know that sounds like cynical and bad and whatnot, but like in AAA, you're often working for a publicly traded company and you need to hit like a fiscal quarter and, you know, you must get that thing out before, you know, fiscal year, whatever. Um, and oftentimes I think that's why things end up out in the world that aren't as good as they could be or should be. Um, or because like the investment is just no longer worth spending. Um, I guess for like the smaller scale stuff, I don't know, you know, we're gonna, I haven't released anything as an indie, so I don't know that I'll know when it's done. Um, it's probably one of the, it's probably very much like AAA in that I'll never think it's done, you know, I'll never be happy with it. Um, but you know, that's just, the nature of, you know, working on something for years is you hit a point where all you can see is like every idea that you've had that's not there, um, you know, or anything that's not quite what you imagine it would be. Uh, so as far as like the best things, so I took the thing that has like the more cynical negative answer and answer that first so I can end on an upper note. Um, Sounds good. Like the things that I loved about working in AAA is like just the the crazy amount of resources that were at your disposal, you know, to do something like, uh, I remember there was a point, um, uh, working on infinite where, um, I needed like mocap of kids cause I was working on like the first level or something. And it was really a process of like, Hey, I need some kids. Uh, I need like mocap of kids doing a bunch of stuff. And then, the um, you know, lead artist was like, okay, give me a list. And then I just gave him a list of like making themselves dizzy, playing finger guns, smoking, you know, like all this different stuff that kids ended up doing in this level. Um, you know, hopscotch. And, uh, two days later they were like, I had the animations. I could be putting them in the game, you know, like the through like give a list to this guy, sends it to this other place. It's mo-capped in, you know, across the country in a mocap studio in, you know, outside San Francisco. The data sent back and prepped overnight by some crew that's working that thing. Like the, it's crazy, crazy. The, you know, the sort of like, oh, I need a mountain moved like now. And then, you know, if, if it's sufficiently important within a project, that mountain gets moved. 
Um, and that's incredible, you know, like, oh, I need, we need six more people hired to work on this, like now. And that happens, you know, where it's like, oh yeah, okay, well to solve this, we're going to contract an entire studio. Uh, we're just going to hire them to work for six months or something. Um, so that's awesome about working in AAA. Um, just like the, the, the craziness of the scope of things that you can take on. Um, I can't do that now, obviously. Um, but like, I think the flip side is the awesome thing that I like about working on in the indie side and the small scales. Like, this is my thing. Like, me and five other people, like, we own it. This is like in totality, like every idea, like everything about it, the company itself, like, this is ours. And um, there's no ambiguity, or there's very little ambiguity about how anything's supposed to work. And like the communication between us all is extremely rapid and tight and easy. Like a company meeting just means like we all sort of turn our chairs around and have a company meeting. You know, it's not like doesn't need to be organized, you know. Uh, right. So communication is really rapid, really fast. And we're able to, I think, you know, it's a part because we're working on a small thing. Um, but also because we're, you know, everybody who's making the game sits in a room together like we're able to cha make changes and you know pretty deep changes very very quickly uh to the game um and there's no there's no bureaucracy at all involved like in my previous life i was a lead for many many years which you know meant i was overseeing teams of you know six to 18 or so at any given point and you just deal with the huge amount of bureaucracy to get anything you know accomplished at that point um just to make sure like everybody's in the loop and everybody like knows who all the stakeholders are and what they all need to provide and so on and so forth like that's um not the case at all and for what it's worth now i find even though the pressure should be on a lot greater you know because this is like totally our thing um i'm so much more generally relaxed about what i'm doing than when i was working on these huge projects um you know, like we have a thing that's out there live right now and I'm still like, I'm sleeping at night and I'm working like normal-ish hours. Like not, <laughs> not normal like for most people, but you know, right. I'm not doing, you know, 12 hours a day, six days a week. Right. You know, or worse. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. Um, well, Dude, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Um, I appreciate it greatly. Um, do you have anything that you want to plug? I mean, obviously the, the flame and the flood, but um, where can people go to check this stuff out? Uh, just go to the molassesflood.com uh, would be a place to check it out. You can see info about the game and screenshots and uh, info on the team. And if you were interested, you can pre-order it uh, via our Humble widget there. Um, and it will be that'll give you early access as soon as we go live on Steam. Um, we don't yet have a date for when we're going to be doing that, but it's not, I don't think it's going to be that far out. I think we're actually like really happy with how the backer beta has been going, um, which is probably going to be, have us inclined to go wider into Steam early access sooner than, um, than uh, we may have initially planned. Well, fantastic. Forrest, thank you so much for coming on to the show. And if you're interested in more, uh, you can go to, uh, iTunes and check out Game Devastation or to patreon.com backslash Stefan Frost and you can find more Game Devastation there. Uh, for everybody tuning in, thank you so much. Forrest, once again, thank you. Adios, guys. Thanks.